Welcome to Her Skin, a podcast about the minority experience. I'm Abby Chinaya. A year ago, I started a photography series called Light Skin, Dark Skin, following the stories of brown women and their experiences with colorism. Now I'm taking things a step further. I'm having discussions about diversity, skin color, race, inclusivity, and everything in between. Um, So today sitting down with me is Amalyn Sadananda. We're doing this recording via Zoom uh, because I'm in Auckland, stuck in a lockdown, and Amalyn lives in Malaysia. So Amalyn, we have known each other for two decades. Yeah, about 20 years. Sounds about right. Yeah. And we grew up in very similar environments. I think you were just like a couple of streets away from me. So what you're doing now is very interesting to me because I don't recall us having narratives to be outspoken about the environment and the term activism didn't exist in my world growing up. And I don't know if it existed in yours, but my first question to you is how did you transition into full-time activism and what spearheaded the change? Um, Well, so like you mentioned a few things there. So like in terms of like where all this came from and yeah, you're right. We grew up in very similar environments. Our parents knew each other. I used to go to your mom for piano class and all of that. Um, but in a sense, yeah, I would say I didn't know what activism was myself or at least what it entailed, at least till I was maybe in college, like 17, 18, but that didn't mean that I wasn't exposed to people doing something about what's wrong. And to me, that's what activism is. It's about when someone sees, uh, an injustice or sees something that isn't right, they take action to right that wrong or to make things better for the community environment themselves, et cetera. So in that sense, I've seen a lot of it growing up in just my own family. For example, like my granddad used to go around in Pahang to all these remote rubber estates and teach uh, young Indian kids maths and uh, set up Tamil schools and things like this. Growing up, I'm sure you remember my parents were always involved with some sort of medical camp or another every other weekend and they would drag us along. As kids, of course, we hated it because we'd rather hang out (laughs) or do something else. Um, But through that sense, that's where I was exposed. And like things really started picking off um, in terms of getting more involved personally. When, if you remember uh, the beach near our house, Teluk Chumpeda, was it was slightly before you went to New Zealand, I think, there was a McDonald's that popped up at the beach. And in high school, I used to jog to the beach like in the mornings before school, like quite often. Uh, and after the McDonald's popped up, there was a lot of trash all around. And this is when I guess the love for environmentalism came in because This was a path that was beautiful. Every morning you get to see beautiful sunrise by the beach. It was an amazing uh, childhood growing up and to be surrounded by such an amazing environment. 
And when I started seeing people throwing trash and you just see the same logo McDonald's everywhere and on the same path that I used to jog every morning, that's when I did my first stand in that sense where I wrote a letter to the McDonald's and told them, you can't have people throwing trash around. You need to have more rubbish bins. You need to put up signs to ensure that people actually use these rubbish bins, etc. And then things started kicking off. When I got into college, I met people who were like-minded. Um, I myself never really understood what environmental activism or what these things were. And then people started explaining to me what this is, what it, what it can entail. And throughout the years, it just grew. Uh, in college, with my friends, uh, we formed a green society and banned styrofoam in Tar College for a year. And then it came back because of costs or something like that. And then it got banned again. Um, very weird process there. Um, and then it progressed. In 2015, I had the opportunity to go to Paris um, and meet with the International Environmental Circuit. And that was a breath of fresh air, like seeing all these different things happening, that there's more to activism than what we see in Malaysia. Because in reality, what we see in Malaysia is more towards volunteerism, uh, which is where people don't really see the real important need where you need to put all your focus and your time to try and fight a certain cause or fight for something that is there. And for me, that transition towards going full-time um, to me ultimately was when I was in medical school. I was in my third year. And at that time, I was, uh, I was an okay student. I um, went on a holiday after my third year exam and I sat down on a beach in the Philippines and I was just staring out at this pristine, beautiful environment. And I told myself, uh, look, medical school will be around for a hundred years. It's been around for already hundreds of years. But this beautiful view that I'm looking at right now is not going to be around forever. So that ultimately was when I made the decision that I need to focus my time and do something about it. And at the same time, I can have fun. There's a lot that can be done. I mean, just because the world is burning doesn't mean we can't put a picnic down and watch it burn. <laughs> so now that you've been doing activism for a really good length of time, mm -hmm. I wanted to know, how would you define it? And what does activism mean to you? So it comes back, I guess, a lot towards what I mentioned earlier of the experiences I had growing up. Um, it's something that I never realized was something that shaped uh, what my concept of activism is, is that it's when someone, like I mentioned earlier, uh, sees an injustice and wants to right that wrong. And it doesn't matter what that injustice is. For me, my personal um, crusade is for the environment, for against climate change. And uh, for other people, it may be different. But at the end of the day, what we all look towards is more towards a bigger picture. I believe in when it comes to activism or when it comes to doing something, you need to look at things in a bigger picture. It's not just about protests or taking to the streets or shouting or writing petitions or whatever. These are some of the like broader or more publicly known sides of activism, but there's a lot more to it. There is community outreach. Um, there's also community engagement, engaging communities to find out what's wrong and how do you fix these problems through solutions that they can provide. Um, activism to me is not going and telling someone 
you're doing something wrong. Let's do, let's change it. It's more of the dialogue of, hey, I see that you have a problem. What can I do to help? To me, that is what activism is. And a lot of times people try to say that, for example, my point of view, it can also be used as a form of racism or a point of bigotry. And that is true. Technically, you have people like white supremacists and all of this, they believe what they're doing is right and whatever and whatnot. It's their form of activism. It's racist activism. But yeah, that's at the end of the day, activism is about what your personal beliefs are at the end of the day. And yeah. It's interesting because <clears throat> from... I don't know much about activism, which is why I'm talking to you today. And what I have seen in the mainstream media, the portrayal of activism has often to me looked angry. (laughs) It's big groups of people shouting and yelling. And I don't know if, and I like the definition you had to activism. It brought so much more depth into what we see in the mainstream. And do you think the mainstream is portraying activism the right way? Um... Well, I wouldn't say this is just the mainstream. This is the work of activists as well. When we want to talk about something, when we want someone to hear about something, what sort of news would you prefer to hear? I mean, would you rather just read a boring story of, hey, some people just uh, said they didn't like um, this construction project, they'll destroy this forest? Or would you rather see some people chanting, doing something vibrant or angry or whatever as in the media. Um, these are the things that get attention when it comes to mass, uh, to get getting attention to the mass. It's a lot of times certain tactics that are used by activists as well, because a lot of, a lot of times people don't understand that activism is not just about taking to the streets like, uh, I mentioned earlier, it's also about lobbying. It's also about community engagement, community outreach, finding out what's the actual problems, how to fix these problems with the help of the local communities and in a sustainable way as well. And how do we mitigate future climate change disasters? How do we prevent the frontline communities from being affected? There's a lot of aspects to it. There's a lot of stuff like besides just going to the streets, there's um, an international climate change conference under the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change, UNFCCC, that happens every year. This year was supposed to be COP26 in Glasgow, the Conference of Parties 26 in Glasgow. Um, And it's not happening this year, of course. So it's been happening for already 26 years. This is the first year that it's not going to happen because of the pandemic. And this is one place, for example, where you don't see people shouting and protesting on the streets as much. Um, They do, of course, but the real impacts happen in the closed doors between the governments. This is where the real activism of uh, lobbying comes into place, where it works coherently together with what happens in the streets. Because uh, what happens behind these closed doors sometimes may be good, sometimes it's bad, most often it's bad. And if no one in the streets voices this out, these people behind these closed doors who represent all these different governments around the world, they're going to make whatever changes, whatever laws for the environment that suit themselves. Because at the end of the day, it's a government-to-government thing. What's good for the Malaysian government is not necessarily good for the New Zealand government. For example, um, laws to do with trees. Uh, If you want to talk about classification of trees, Malaysia's got oil palm as classified under trees when it shouldn't be because that's a whole different uh, 
topic entirely because of uh, numbers and fake numbers of fake forest coverage, blah, 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 all that jazz. Um, but these kind of laws don't apply at all in New Zealand because of the difference in trees, etc. So why would New Zealand want to put something, a law like this, into an international climate change treaty? So they would look out for their uh, personal interests, etc. So this kind of lobbying, when it happens behind closed doors, it needs support from people from the streets. It needs people who are shouting, who are angry about these things that are happening. It needs people to say all these things so that the media picks it up. If the media portrays it in a bad way for us uh, as activists, then that's a terrible thing. But at the end of the day, for any issue that goes on, any media is good media because that means someone is talking about this issue. For example, in Penang in Malaysia in the north, there's a reclamation project. Before uh, two years ago, no one was talking about this, even though the planning stages, everything was being approved. Two years ago, people started talking about it. The project has slowed down. It's a multi-billion dollar project, but we not we are not sure if we can win this, but People are talking about it. People are starting to question the government's motives when it comes to the environment. So these kind of things, they, there's a lot that needs to be done. Activism is not just about taking to the streets. It's also about understanding what's your policies in your own countries and also in the international circuit so you can see what works and also see what happens on the bigger picture. You can't just win by taking to the streets. You need to take to the... Uh, Courts? I don't know. The law, the law <laughs> places, parliament, different countries have different things. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> so I think about growing up in Malaysia and spending, you know, a good chunk of my childhood there and then coming back here and very late in the piece, finding my voice and the ability to voice my opinions. And I think because, well, I had a conservative upbringing, really, with voicing opinions, and it was what the collective was doing, and that was often conservative, because we live, you know, in a conservative country. So I wanted to know, was it hard learning how to voice your opinions and have your narrative heard by a huge audience? And what does having that influence mean to you? Um, So... Yes, you're right about the whole conservative stuff. I'm sure you remember all the times as kids, I'd always talk back to all the aunties and uncles and get scolding. So that, I guess, is a little bit of that experience. of. But yeah, um, it was quite difficult at first. Like I mentioned, when I was in college, um, starting off and over the years getting uh, more and more... Um, trained as an activist, uh, getting more skills, uh, learning more things and understanding that the narrative that I have as a person who lives in a country that is vulnerable to climate change. uh, Like, I don't know if you know this, Abi, but by 2070, the beach is going to be like at my house. So like, there's like, that we can't die in that, like grow old and die in that house, like in our houses in Kuantan or things like that. Like Because you're just going to drown. Exactly. So like these are like very interesting narratives, especially when you learn more about envir- the, like environmentalism and activism and about the laws and policies and what people are doing and aren't doing. You understand that everyone's narrative is unique. And sometimes, especially for, like I mentioned from, uh, 
the specific demographic that I come from in the sense that from a frontline community in a developing country and as a person of color, um, this is a very important story that needs to be pushed forward, especially like on the uh, more global north side of things where they don't understand this at all. To say, to tell someone this is like to them, they don't understand. It just is a perplexing idea that in 10 years, the house that your parents built or whatever is just going to be gone. That's, that's just not something that they can understand. And that's why these kind of narratives are very important to tell. But as I was saying earlier, it was difficult for me at first, especially in the Malaysian scene. Um, specifically because in Malaysia, like I mentioned earlier, volunteerism is what it is in Malaysia. People don't see you as an act, like being an activist is not a good thing. Like, I mean, you are considered trash of society. It's not a real job or things like this because people don't see the importance uh, that is in activism. Um, people don't see the importance of time, etc. for these people. Uh, and yeah, so in Malaysia, I at the, as uh, I was growing my, myself as an activist, it, was a difficult time. Um, there were a lot of times when it was not better for me to speak, it would be better for someone else to speak because I look as um, my image, I've always had this beard for like already the past 10 years since I left home. Um, I've always had long hair and um, in Malaysia, that's kind of like not the most, uh, it's a very threatening look. I always get this all the time. And so there's been a lot of times, especially where people just like, oh, it's you. Uh, oh, you're the one who's coming and teaching us. Uh, or you're the one who's doing this or doing that. Or like they think I'm some sort of pothead. That's why I'm in activism or things like this. And like, that's that's just terrible conceptions. And to me, things really took a turn when I went to Paris uh, in 2015 for the when the Paris Agreement was signed, uh, the International Climate Change uh, Treaty under the UN. Um, I was there and I met so many different people from all around the world. Uh, I met the people I'm currently working with there as well. Um, and all these amazing activists. And when I was sharing my stories about what I've been doing back home and the struggles I've been facing, to hear that encouragement from others, to get people uh, from outside to actually like say, hey, you're doing an amazing job. You're you're you need to do more. You need to come and teach us to do these things. You need, let's pay you to come and do stuff for us. And I'm like, what? I don't like, I don't see value in myself in that way because that's what I've been taught all my life growing up. Either a doctor, engineer, lawyer, even if you work in a office as just an admin clerk or something like this, you're still better than an activist in like most common sense, like most common terms in Malaysia in that sense. Um, and that's really where I found my voice. When I was in Paris, I had so many opportunities. Um, my first ever international experience. And on the second week of this climate change conference where the Paris Agreement was signed, uh, COP21, um, I was pulled into a group and um, helped to organize a protest worth with about 500,000 people. And um, I was put in charge of some logistics parts of things. And like people were like encouraging me to do this. And all this was secret and hush hush because of like, uh, I don't know if you remember 2015, there was the Bataclan shootings. Paris has been under lockdown, uh, military rule since then, military lockdown since then. Technically, it still is still now. 
Um, and during that time, we couldn't do protests. A lot of the leaders were arrested and put under house arrest during this time. And so a lot of people like myself had to step up and uh, take opportunities. So that's when I really started realizing that I can do this. I'm not an idiot. And a lot of these other people, they don't have the same story that I can tell and the impact that I can tell. And that's when things started picking off. Um, I took opportunities where I could to speak. I used to write quite a bit as well. And um, usually when it comes to big protests, uh, a lot of groups try to push me forward to be the main speaker or the MC or things like this because, again, I'm a very proud person of color from Malaysia and I'm very happy to tell my story because if people don't do something about it, legit, I cannot go and die in my house that my granddad like toiled all his life to get for us. So like, I want to die in that house, man. I don't want to die in the sea where the house would be. No, yeah. There's such a huge family history with that one as well. And exactly. I love how you mentioned having your own unique narrative because it's so true. And when there's inclusivity with all these unique narratives. I think that's also how you can bring change, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know more about protests because we're in, I would say constant communication, even though we live far away from each other, but you were always traveling before the pandemic and um, coordinating and organizing protests. So I was curious to know what does coordinating protests involve? Um, uh, well, I, I want to tell us, there's a very interesting, uh, okay, simple set. Okay, let me, it's, it's like this. Um, it comes back down to what activism is. Like I said earlier, when there's something wrong and someone wants to do something about it. So when you want to coordinate a protest or you want to do something about it, I wouldn't say it necess necessarily has to be a protest, but it's more about that thing that you want to do. Say you want to right that wrong. Um, when we talk about organizing and stuff like this, it always comes down towards like bringing people together, having them communicate with one another, and then from there having them have an action plan for what's next. And it may sound very simple from what I'm telling you right now, but it's not. Um, one of the things that I do uh, when I, when I say coordinating protests. I don't really coordinate the protests directly or things like this. Um, what I have done specifically in the past has been more towards facilitating groups to, um, to one another. One of the amazing things that I do with the Artivist Network, um, it's a group of arts activists that uh, we go around the world uh, and support local groups to fight against the environment. And fight against, uh, to fight for the environment, not <laughs> fight for the environment. Um, and like an example is like last year, uh, the climate change conference, this uh, COP, that COP, uh, Conference of Parties, that happens every year. Um, this was COP25, it was supposed to happen in Chile last year. So they, in Chile, didn't have a big uh, climate change uh, coalition. And um, they had several groups already working on environmental issues or local issues, community issues, etc. Um, so one of the things that one of our members did was help bring all these different parties together and then they formed a coalition. And from that coalition, they started having proper action plans of what they wanted to do throughout the year. 
until the conference comes over and how they were going to react to the conference, what's going to happen during that time, how they're going to bring international people around. And one of the things that I did mainly when I was there helping out was to help these local groups. So like they wanted to organize um, a protest and they wanted to do wheat pasting. So wheat pasting is where you take posters and then you put uh, stick them up on the streets, etc., or on the road, wherever you want to do this. Um, most of the time it's illegal, I guess, in some places where there's a lot of advertising laws, uh, like New Zealand, I think it's illegal there. Uh, Malaysia too. Um, so you basically take wheat paste and which you make out of flour and sugar and then you go around town and just start pasting these things. So there's a lot of uh, certain tactics which you need to know, like you need to have a lookout, a rabbit, um, someone who carries stuff, someone carries glue, someone to make things look inconspicuous, someone to take photos, um, all these different simple roles. These are things that I can go there and help teach and other skills that I've learned across the years um, are things that I can go and help impart onto these uh, young, younger generation or newer activists or people who are maybe policy makers but not so used to doing things on the streets so we can go and impart that knowledge or people who are more used to being on the streets but don't really know so much about um, the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change which is something most activists should know about because it's basically an international treaty for everyone. Uh, that's supporting everything that you're doing in a sense. Um, so these are the things that we can come and provide and that we go and do. And that in a sense is what helps to coordinate um, a protest because like I mentioned earlier, protest is not just about be things being on the streets. It's also about doing proper petitions. It's also about going to proper town council meetings, suggesting laws, in, uh, putting the right people in power, voting for the right people, pressuring the government to um, like uphold certain things that they've said in the past uh, or holding them accountable for their carbon emissions, etc., or where their trash goes. There's so many different things that need to be done in this sense. So when you want to coordinate a protest, you need to coordinate all these different actions. You need to coordinate what is going to be a direct action, what's an indirect action, what's going to be lobbying on this side, what's going to be, a, what's going to be in the courts, what's going to be on the streets, what's going to happen. All these things need to be coordinated when you want to have real big impact and you want to have continuous and sustainable uh, change. Amalyn, can you tell me more about the Artivist Network that you're part of at the moment? Um, so the Artivist Network is not exactly something new. Um, it's been around since, like, I think it was 1999. And this all revolved around mainly the conference of parties that I mentioned earlier that happens every year. So this is basically the main climate change conference uh, that happens all around the world. All these different uh, governments uh, send representatives and they meet in different places, uh, usually alternating between the global south and the global north. Um, so the Artivist Network, we have basically set up art spaces in these uh, during these conferences. So these conferences usually go on for about two to three weeks. Um, and we set up an, uh, art spaces at, uh, near these uh, conference centers so that people can have a safe space uh, 
to express how they feel about what's going on in the conference, what's happening to the environment, what's happening about climate change. They want to express how they feel, what they are doing, etc. This is a space for them to do it, a safe space for anyone to come. Uh, we provide materials, etc. This is what we do most of the time uh, to we get funding, etc. to get um, money for spaces so we can provide these kind of spaces. And these spaces as well, um, while we are there, uh, we also push um, for actions, like direct actions, usually at these conferences. This is the only UN conference where you can actually do protests inside the conference area. Um, but it's under a very strict system. There's forms you need to fill up like a day in advance, um, a bunch of different things. But it's a really amazing thing that they let you protest there. And this is where um, the protest really meets um, the lawmakers in the sense that whatever happens inside those rooms, the information can come out and we can react to it. And then we can react to it immediately. And having these art spaces and places like this and... Um, People like the uh, part of the art who are part of the activist network, um, like painters, graffiti artists, um, people like this can come and support these different actions. Like you could be um, a reporter from the Philippines who's at a conference and you want you hear something bad happening about an oil plantation, some uh, oil palm plantation taking over some forests in the Philippines or something like this and you want to do something you have an idea you can come to one of us we'll help you out provide you materials and we'll try and rope, wrangle in some people who are also in the space to help you out and these are like some of the amazing things that happen from uh, these art spaces now we have sort of officially registered in a sense um, over the past past uh, past three years um, we've uh, we have become a bit more formal in the sense that now, we, besides just art spaces at these climate change conferences, we are trying to do uh, more trainings as well to train up more arts activists around the world. Um, we've worked in Latin America, all across Europe, uh, some places in Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, and a lot of different places as well uh, over the past two years. And um, mainly now we're trying to support other local groups with art activism. And also we've realized, especially in the global south, there are a lot of amazing artists who are doing activist art, but they don't really consider themselves art activists or artivists, as we call ourselves. Um, and we want to start highlighting this. So these are some of the things that we do in that sense. We got a whole bunch of different things uh, happening. You can check us out at activistnetwork.org. Um, yeah, one, one last thing to say about the Activist Network. Um, one reason why I prefer working with uh, this group of people is because in the Activist Network, we firmly believe when it comes to helping people um, to go with the approach, like I mentioned earlier, of... Not the, in the sense, not the colonial approach, not the white man approach of, hey, I see you have a problem. Here's the solution. Fix it. Um, it's more of, hey, I see you have a problem. How can I help you? Because these two approaches are very different and they leave a very different effect as well. I really do agree with you on that, Amalyn. That was very profound. <laughs> I'm going to steal that saying, I think. <laughs> Go for it, go for it. <laughs> so you did touch on this before. Um, and 
I was really wanting to know what your experiences have been um, working in this arena as a minority man of color. And I was going to ask, did you have experiences with colorism? I'm sure the answer will be yes. And can you talk about a few of them? Um, yeah. So being uh, brown-skinned, uh, tall, bearded, long-haired man um, has definitely had its challenges um, at home and abroad. In Malaysia, my appearance is considered threatening. Um, people, it's a very common thing for me to walk by someone and they clutch the handbag. When it's it's a very common thing that I faced uh, throughout my life, and it's something I think like you also are maybe familiar in this with this in a sense as well that. It's something that's been very ingrained into us, I guess, by our parents as well since we were young. Um, like, I don't know about you specifically, but I know for me when growing, when I was growing up um, to study or to like sometimes go for piano class with your mom when she was being really mean to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> My mom's not mean. <laughs> I mean, when I was a bad boy, she'd be mean to me, of course. <laughs> Yes, um, but yeah, like all those times, my mom would always remind me, uh, you are not a Bumi Putra. Um, you're not going to get a scholarship. Uh, you want to go to all these fancy places or study all these things. Uh, when I was young, I don't know if you remember, I wanted to do uh, what science and all that stuff. And all these things weren't cheap. And my parents always used to tell me, if you don't study hard, you're not going to get into all these places because of the color of your skin. And it was something that's been very ingrained into me growing up. I always had to do things a certain way or uh, appear a certain way to the, a certain crowd, etc. And it's not something that I've been able to escape with activism. Um, maybe in some of my activist circles, yes, I have amazing friends um, who... I would like to say don't see the color of my skin. But at the same time, there have been many experiences. Uh, one example I can give you was a couple of years ago in uh, Poland. Uh, so in Poland, when the climate change conference was there, I went there two months ahead uh, to help work with the local groups, uh, similar to what I did in Chile. Um, went there found out like who's working with what, how can we work together, um, how can we link the international groups, etc., etc. Um, it was a very common place for me to be stopped daily by the police just to check and look at my passport, etc. Um, at the same time, there was one day uh, I was helping a friend of uh, one of our fellow artists who was making giant puppets. I think I showed you uh, some pictures of those giant puppets in Poland of Bolsonaro. So I was carrying this giant puppet head in one hand, a trash bag filled with like uh, sticks and leaves in another hand, a backpack with like brooms sticking out of it, and like uh, something like a, the, the sleeping tent thingy hanging from the bottom of my backpack. And I had to cross like 40 minutes from one part of town to our art space where we were making these puppets. I crossed that uh, those that across that forty minute journey. I was stopped by police five times, uh, 
uh, once to a point the guy took out everything that I had, checked everything, and he was very convinced that I was some refugee or some sort over there and that I had stolen one of the UN badges because um, the UN gives you like these special badges, which is sort of like your passport during the conference times. And most of the time, the police are told not to disturb anyone with these blue badges because these people are most likely international. They, some of them may be negotiators, etc. So they don't want to, like, it's a very common thing that local authorities just don't mess with people with blue badges when they're in town um, for this conference. But of course, I didn't get uh, that treatment. Um, my beard was definitely thicker than it is right now. And I was stopped constantly, uh, constantly harassed, even with this blue badge, which made everyone special except me. Um, I'm not so sure if there were other people of uh, my skin color and my similar appearance who were stopped ex as well, um, because it wasn't just a small thing. And like some things that may um, seem trivial sometimes are quite like really intense. Uh, another example was last year in Chile. Um, I was like there for four months um, and the conference was supposed to happen in Chile, but it didn't happen there. It ended up happening in Madrid because in Chile there was a revolution because of social inequality that was happening there. So during the first week of protests, um, again, uh, my beard was much thicker than it is now. Long hair, brown skin, eyes. Like there are no Indian people in Chile, like it's very, very hard to find people of my complexion there. And um, the, during the first week of protest, I had to stay indoors. Um, I wanted to go and help out in like the kitchens or the first aid or things like this. But a lot of my friends told me stay indoors because of the color of your skin. Um, reason being is because in Chile over the past two years, in Santiago specifically, uh, a lot of Haitian uh, people and people of darker skin, like uh, black skin color, um, have been going to Santiago and stealing people's jobs. And uh, one person, for example, was a guy that I'd done a vegan picnic with uh, two, three times before that. He was part of uh, the Spoon Revolution, uh, Cuchera de Revolucion. Um, and... He and I were really close, like we like were hanging out. He taught me a bunch of vegan recipes and stuff. And after that protest happened, I wanted to go to his kitchen and make food for some of the protesters, etc. He told me to stay away. He told me straight up, I don't want you to come near here. We are fighting right now to keep people like you away from our country. And then I was shocked. He knows I was there for... Uh, protests and stuff like that. Hate, he just, something I never, like, I would think it's a very trivial thing. I mean, like, you, anyone can lose their job to anyone, you know, but. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and, and, and I wanted to clarify when you said stealing jobs, you had that in inverted um, commas because it was just a perception people were having of a certain skin tone because exactly, of a, yeah. things that had happened that aren't co correlated, really, mm -hmm. aren't they? Yeah, it's the same in Malaysia. So here in Malaysia now, there's been an influx of Bangladeshi workers for labor. Um, and in Malaysia, what we treat Bangladeshi workers or people who are darker skinned um, like trash. I mean, my parents and all of this, like everyone in my family, except my brother and myself, are way lighter skinned 
like lighter skin tone than myself and my brother. And like my mom has like caught Sydney when I remember we were 17 or 18 and we went to Australia. And then my mom said, you boys better not stay out in the sun too much. You're already dark as it is. You don't want to have more trouble while you're there. Because I mean, it's a fact, the darker your skin, the more likely you're going to attract attention of either a racist, a bigot or the police. And most often than not, it's not going to end well for the person who has a dark skin color. But you're you're like a like it's like a walking stereotype. The dark skinned man with long hair and a big beard, and Sorry. it's unfortunately has been made into a stereotype. That's why it was. I wanted to know your mm-hmm. perspective because it is. What is it like as a brown man and mm-hmm. having like over the years hung out with you and stuff? And I would and you're one of you're my best friend and seeing the way people would look at you and in a in a fearful way and I'm standing here thinking. <laughs> He's nothing like what I can see in your eyes right now and how you're reacting is not who he is as a person. And it's just, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's sad. <laughs> yeah. They always, whenever they see me smile or whenever I'm around them for more than five mm-hmm. minutes, I think it's a very natural thing that I do. It's a common trigger point. I always just smile. And like everyone always tells me I have a very nice smile. I got the Dali man smile. <laughs> you do have a very nice smile. One last thing I wanted to say about the whole colorism and racist side of things. Um, like a lot of times people always tell, tell me or say to me like, oh, all these things happen around you, but it doesn't bother you or you still are so strong and keep moving on and things like this. This is something that I think needs to be said because a lot of times it's not a very, it's not a thing that's brought up is that why is it necessary for the person of color, for the person who's being discriminated upon, for the person who is being marginalized, uh, racially, racially um, criminalized, etc. Why does this person have to be the one that's always calm, that's always uh, strong, that always has it emotionally together because it isn't fair. It isn't fair that like, for example, I would have to go to any country that I go to and I'd have to always be worried about how the police view me in this particular country. Um, because that's something that for me, it's not something that's nice because it's at the end of the day, a scary situation when you are being stopped constantly, when you hear about people being arrested for no reason, people dying in police custody or people, for example, um, in Australia, um, there was a number of years ago when I was there and there was a man in Melbourne who literally just was walking back to his car. He was an Indian man walking back to his car and they poured petrol over him and set him on fire. So it's a very difficult thing to say that, oh, this is uh, this black person or this dark skinned person has to just deal with it or it's just life that happens to them and like we need to make change etc yeah all these things need to happen but at the same time these kind of things about people like blowing up or like people like getting angry when people are profiling them or like people breaking down these are things that are very real and people need to address these things because it's not easy being a person of color or like facing racial discrimination in any sense and you don't always have to be strong and sometimes it's all right to just let go you know so Amalyn what is next for you um 
to be honest, what's next for me is nothing. I've kind of been in a burnout for the longest time. Um, in a way, I'm kind of happy that this pandemic has happened because it's shut down a lot of things and it's helped me to say no to a lot of things as well. Um, because I've had, a, I have a very hard time saying no to things, and uh, um, I think I've been worn thin, um, doing a lot of things all over the world and all over the place, and not always getting paid well for it as well. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not so sure. Like I personally just want to take some downtime for the rest of the year, um, but at the same time, I'm still. Uh, doing a lot of work with the Artivist Network. We are pushing forward with our trainings. I'm doing a lot of admin work as well uh, for the Artivist Network and for other groups as well, like some trainings here and there, uh, a few talks um, here and there as well. Uh, there's a project that I've been doing for the past uh, year, since last year. It's actually also about environmental racism, about how plus uh, white countries or developed countries throw their plastic waste in developing countries like Malaysia, Thailand, because they think, hey, we're not going to deal with this problem. You deal with it. Let your people get fucked instead of ours. Um, it's uh, this plastic project that I'm working with an amazing friend of mine. Um, we've been giving some talks here and there. Uh, she's currently finishing her thesis, which is based on it. Um, after that, we've got a few ideas that we plan to push but yeah, I'm planning to just stay in Malaysia for this current year and maybe moving forward, I don't know, something new. I want to be the eggplant king, Raja Terung. I've got like six, seven, eight different eggplants that I'm trying to grow now. You're an amazing gardener as well and you're a whiz with planting things. So I think that would be really great. Yep, I can grow anything. <laughs> Well, Amalyn, we have come to the end of our chat. Yep, yep. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for doing this. And um, you gave me some really, really good insight into activism and what it entails. And the amazing thing is that I've known you for like 21 years and didn't really know what you were doing. And this was a great way to find out. So thank you so much. Yep, yep, no worries. Always happy to share the story.